All right, here we go. Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside Podcast. Happy New Year. This is coming out right at the start of the new year and right when a fantastic book is launching and the author, Mike Rucker, is here today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me back. I was really looking forward to this. We had so much fun the first time, so. Yeah, time number two was always extra fun because you kind of know each other and you have this history, a little bit of history. Mike, your book came out. It came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. The Fun Thank Habit. You so much. How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. The Fun Habit. Find Delight, Fix Unhappy. Mike, this was a long time coming, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Tell us what happened. Well, I, I think I mentioned on the first episode, I, I lost my younger brother and was kind of lost and had always valued happiness. But at that time, when it was sort of elusive, I became overly concerned with trying to be happy when it wasn't really an appropriate emotional response. And that kind of failure led to a lot of self-exploration and ultimately found that, you know, happiness tends to be this exercise and evaluation, which can get really destructive if that's not really an appropriate emotion in, in that moment. And so that rumination now we know through empirical research actually can lead to mental illness, you know, because you start to see where you want to be out in the horizon and you overemphasize the gap between where you at and where you want to be, not giving yourself enough credit that you have the agency and autonomy to kind of get there. And if you're mindful about it, you can actually really enjoy the journey and just forget about the destination. And I know that's a little bit cliche, but ultimately it proves true. And so I think in the book, I make a strong case, not just based on my own anecdotal evidence, but also a ton of research that if you just kind of go out and have fun deliberately, you don't necessarily need to be happy, but that you index these joyful and delightful experiences by your own design. Ultimately, happiness is going to be an amazing byproduct. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so you have done all of this research on fun. There is a ton of information on your website, michaelrucker.com. And in fact, you reference your website quite a bit throughout the book, different places that you can go and lists that you can look at and ideas that you can find. You are a behavioral scientist, organizational psychologist, and charter member of the International Positive <laughs> Psychology Association. I love all the things that are out there that you would have no idea that there is an International Positive Psychology Association. You've been published in the International Journal of Workplace Health Management, Nutrition Research. Your ideas about fun and health have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Fox Psychology Today, Outside Magazine, Thrive Global, all over the place, Fast Company, mm -hmm. The Telegraph, and you're a senior leader at Active Wellness. So you have got a long history here learning about fun, and the book is fun, of course. It had to be. This cover is super fun and it is a gorgeous book. I learned so much. I'd already done a fair amount of research on your website because we had talked before. So it was a total delight to go and read your book and to dive in more and to learn so much more. So you kind of touched on it, but do most people think that happiness and fun are the same thing? No, I think fun has really been villainized to some degree, right? We look at fun as a whimsical act. And as we get older, it's unfortunate, right? Uh, Similar to how complex problems like you have multiple reasons and so you can get caught up saying one thing is the cause, right? Like common one is obesity, right? And so, you know, some people say it's plate size. Some people say it's new urban design that we don't walk to work anymore, right? Some people say it's we don't get outdoors enough. So there are all these reasons and it's likely 
for some people, a couple out of like 30 different things, fun is the same issue, right? It's like, for some people, it's they were raised with a Puritan work ethic. So they look, they have this sense of guilt, because fun isn't what you do, right? Like fun is literally an unspiritual act, because we're supposed to live from the sense of duty. So if you're enjoying yourself, it could quite literally be viewed as sinful. For others, there's this concept called the U-shaped curve of happiness. And again, you know, there's a lot of science behind this assertion. It's an interesting time in our lives where we're having kids later and we're all living longer. So those are good things, right? For the most part. But what it does mean is that we don't have a blueprint because in prior generations, it was generally we only needed to deal with our kids. And now we're not only the caregivers for our children, but also our aging parents. And that's a whole new set of responsibilities that crowd out fun if we're not deliberate about it. And then the third big one is this change from algorithmic work to heuristic work. So many of us are working in a knowledge society where we don't know really what the goalpost is, but there's always another email to answer, right? And so we can fall victim to, without even knowing it, allowing this extension of work to bleed into our lives. So what's a a common sort of illumination of this is, are you you playing with your kids, but still kind of on the side answering emails or, you know, checking your DMs? If you are subconsciously, that's really just an extension of work. Like you will trick yourself into thinking, well, no, that's not right. I spent 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. with my kids. Like I have family time. Really? Like, why don't you check? Because now devices are pretty good about this. Why don't you see what your devices you were doing between seven and nine? Because I'll tell you, it will tell you either on Instagram or on Gmail. And just that sort of awareness of like, oh, I haven't really had a transition ritual between work and leisure. And we now know, I think a a good example of this is in the 90s, especially a lot of us that are A-type, right, that want to do it all, we would champion folks that didn't sleep. Like sleep deprivation was like, oh, you know, the Gary V's of the world, right? Like if you really want it, you need to hustle. And so just when the kids go to bed, work from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m., we now know through rigorous study that's terrible advice, especially for people that want to be productive, that actually the next day, your productivity goes in half. So you could just look at the simple math equation, right? Like if you're working 40 hours a week, and with the type of bigger and vitality that comes with a well-balanced life, you have two units of output versus the person that's grinding it out, but is really just producing one unit of output in 60 hours, you know, that's Mm. 80 units of output versus 60. And I know that's kind of a geeky way to look at it, but it's simple math, right? Like then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, and people can just mindfully spend just a couple of weeks and realize like, oh my gosh, the science is right here. Like I'm a much better version of myself by actually taking a little bit of time off the table and enjoying myself. Right. Right. One of the things that really stuck out to me, I guess I would have never really thought about the difference between happiness and fun. They're kind of correlated. I don't think I ever would have taken the time to sort of differentiate between the two. But like you talk about, it's like happiness is sort of this state, this how do we get there? But what you write is that fun is an action. Fun is something that we can schedule in and it's much more concrete. And then like what you're talking about is that, well, happiness can flow out of making those commitments to have fun. So you talk about creating the fun file. What's that? 
So, you know, similar to what we just discussed over the last five minutes is that because we lead busy lives, what I've found is the folks that are the most fun are the ones scheduling it deliberately. And so it requires a little bit of premeditation because a lot of times we can just, you know, week after week, because our lives are habituated, just let time fly by. Mm -hmm. And so just the simple act, as goofy as it sounds, of creating a premeditated list of things that you actually want to do, at least seeds it because two things happen, right? It reverses what I discussed about that gap between where you want to be and where you are. It's sort of this annoying moniker that's sitting there like, hey, here are all these things I want to do, but I'm not doing them. So it pulls you into wanting to do them because you realize they're there and you're not being action oriented about it. And two, sometimes that's all it takes. We don't think about what might be enjoyable. And so reconnecting to joys from the past, understanding what it is that would really light us up rather than being overly influenced from marketing or social media or quote unquote FOMO, the, you know, the fear of missing out. We get to put on these blinders to outside influence and, you know, what is it that I really want to do? And then three, just thinking ahead. What is it that I want to do in the future so that you can start to build, you know, ways to, to make that happen? And in the book, I go fairly deep in the weeds about there's all sorts of opportunities, even if you don't necessarily have the monetary means to go on a vacation or things like that. With a little bit of creativity, you can really have as much fun as you want, you know, without breaking the bank. Right. Well, okay. So you talk about having a list of eight to 15 things in the fun file, eight to 15 achievable choices are the words that you use. And I was curious if people have a hard time. I started to think about it and I thought I would have a hard time coming up with eight to 15. Do people have a hard time? I, you know, it all depends. You know, some people, I think it it's determined by your ability to do brainstorming activities, but <laughs> mine must be low. <laughs> no, but I mean, and that's just one constraint. You know, certainly it could be that your life is habituated to the point where, yeah, like, I don't know what I want to do. So I have a few exercises in a book for people that do get stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you just you approach the exercise with some curiosity mm-hmm. and really just kind of stretch yourself, like asking yourself, what is the next thing? And so maybe it is only eight, but getting to a place so that you can start to experiment, then you can start to kind of build on that. Mm-hmm. I, and again, I think I mentioned in the book, there is no magic number, but we do know. But there kind of is, right? Didn't you say it was 12 or something like that? Yeah. So that comes from studies with regards to the paradox of choice, right? If you have too many, then it just Mm -hmm. becomes this overwhelming list, similar to your to-do list, right? We now know that to-do lists can be pretty counterproductive because you see all of that and you're like, oh, okay. And then I think eight is just like a good amount because then at least you have this choice and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to prioritize this one. And then you don't want to have too many, one again, because the paradox of choice, but two, once we have like too many buckets that can become overwhelming and it gives us motivation to put it to the side, like, okay, you know, I've gotten this outside of my head, but I don't need to do anything with it. But again, be playful with the list. And yeah, it's a great idea. The fun file. It reminds me when when my kids were younger and we were trying to fill the time. Now they're a little busier, but when they were really little trying to sort of fill the day and I would have a seasonal bucket list this zoo that zoo this nature center if I were to think back I bet it was about eight to 15 items that we would try and get to in the season and those were some really full years and I don't have that anymore so it is really such a great idea to have this bucket of choices that you can go to and it would remind you like oh hey these are some of the things that you said you wanted to do instead of having nothing like right now I feel like I have nothing I would have to stop and 
think of ideas if I wanted to insert more fun intentionally. And so I love the idea of having the fun file. Well, and a great example of that too, right, is like just one in my own life that happened a couple of weeks ago. Like my daughter loves sloths. And so I think if you aren't premeditated, and again, this takes very little time, and this comes from a little place of privilege, but on Fiverr, you can get folks to do research for you. So sometimes like if I'm within 30 (laughs) seconds, I'll be like, I want to know anywhere that I can visit a sloth within the North Carolina area. And so I just value my time more than $5. And so I let somebody else do it. And then I get this list. And now I found a place where you can go hug sloths for an hour. And that's just because I got ahead of it, right? But to your point, you're sort of like, okay, what are we going to do this weekend? It can be something that you just habituated because in that moment, it would take a lot of energy to figure it out, right? Right. So again, these seem very pedestrian, but once you put them into practice, then all of a sudden you're doing these really amazing things that might not necessarily have happened. And they generally require Mm -hmm. the same amount of resources. And when I talk about resources, I mean both time and money. And Mm -hmm. so again, just a little bit of upfront work, again, not hard, but now you have like all these amazing things to do. And you kind of alluded to it, right? Like sometimes we're in that space, especially when our kids are young, like, hey, I want to have this growth mindset and be very expansive about the experiences they have. And so just finding who you were back then and then, you know, applying it. And Hmm. it's usually not time intensive. It just requires you to be a little bit more premeditated. And now these are things you really want to do instead of things that you're doing, you know, oh, okay, there's a Christmas parade. Let's go do that. Because, you know, that was the first thing you saw. You know, you're just adjusting. Right, because you're scrambling to find something. I think that happens so often. And I also think if some of your things happen to be outside and they're weather dependent, you can't seize that moment if you don't have a list of things to pull from. Like, oh, you know, this afternoon looks like it's going to be beautiful, this evening, whatever. And if you don't have that list to pull from, then you're, I've had tons of times like that where I'm scrambling to look for something. And then all of a sudden, the opportunity has slipped away because you spent 45 minutes trying to figure out what to do and then it's dark. And so, It's such a practical idea. And something on point with your message is that all too often, and um, I'm throwing a big rock at a glass house. Unfortunately, the devices in our house, again, I mean, it's pouring rain here, right? In Greensboro. The default is, okay, well, we'll go play Roblox. You know, we'll put the pacifier in our mouth, you know, which is really the iPad. And so if you have something like a game, right? So what right now, my kids are really into escape rooms. So I found a couple really cheap options on Amazon. Like, hey, let's not play Roblox. Let's escape from this room, which is a really engaging indoor activity that wouldn't be available if I didn't eat my own dog food as well. Right, right. The pressure's on, like, right? Like, you got to be having fun too. And actually, you know, the same is for me. I've been thinking about. I started 1,000 Hours Outside 10 years ago. And back then, it it was saving my soul. And now our kids are a little busier and they're more self-sufficient. And I wouldn't necessarily need, I don't think, the outside time for the same reasons I used to. But I was just thinking, if I hadn't started this, I don't think I would still be getting these memories. So it's an interesting thing when you put out into the world something that is really important to you. It gives you accountability. And so that's just a little side piece that I think is great for people to share, share what you're passionate about, because it's going to keep you accountable through your life too. Well, that's what I found really fun is when I engage with amazing podcasters like yourself, there's already this selection bias because they're doing something they really love. I mean, you are making time for something that you enjoy and you're kind of living your identity, which is an important step. And so you bring up something that I found fascinating that's 
sort of, you know, one level deep in my uh, website and not something I talk about too much in the book, but I'm very deliberate about making sure at least four times a year, I'm doing something super exciting, right? In the book, I call it the living quadrant, but then I kind of move on. And I think being deliberate about that is something that really resonates with people, but not enough are doing. So to your point, how can you organize something that's meaningful for you? So have fun with it, figure out what lights you up. Maybe that's playing music or whatever it is. Maybe you're a maker, but then figure out how can you ritualize that because everything else you know, has been kind of habituated for you. Take back some control, take back some agency and autonomy. And once you build it in, what's magical and you, you know, hit on it in the book, I have a whole chapter on reminiscing, all of those indexed memories, if they're special, all of a sudden build an amazing amount of resilience. And so, you know, you got to do the reps, you got to build that equity. But once you have it, because you're 10 years in, right, it's quite magical. I'm sure even on the bad days, you just look back at what a great job you've done. And you're like, okay, I can get through this bad day. And what's interesting is I don't even really feel like I've done that good of a job, but by having that intention, that smoothed out a lot of the rough edges that I think come along with family life. Because I do think that these experiences and these sensory experiences and kind of what you talk about, like there was a really interesting part in your book about memories and how when things are rote and routine, that they end up being one memory. But when you have this surprise and uncertainty and something new, it kind of expands your sense of time. Is that right? Yeah, you're exactly right. So I found a way to explain it that I think makes it more understandable. So in biology, anyone that's taken biology 101 knows that most of our systems are really meant to be efficient, right? When you look at homeostasis, our bodies want to be efficient machines. And our brains burn most calories when we're, you know, unless you're an endurance athlete. And so our brain's trying to preserve energy when it can. And what we know is that if any memory is similar, it's stored as one memory in our head when we look back at things. And so it's easy to think that you had a hundred magazines, all of the same issue. Like, are you going to keep them around the house? So instead you throw out the 999 and you keep the one magazine. And that's exactly what the brain does. And that's why like anyone that's familiar with Bronnie Ware's work, you know, the five regrets of the dying. Oh, I read that this year. Uh, it's an amazing book, right? Yeah, amazing. The underpinning of at least three of those five is that folks feel like their life has passed them by and they weren't deliberate. And why we know that is when your life is overly habituated, you're not doing things that create new memories. When you're looking back at the timeline of your life, if you've just done the same thing, you're like, oh, I did that thing. And then that's it. And you're like, what happened? If you're doing all of these amazing things, like each is a really rich, we call it encoding, you know, in geek psychology speak. If you've encoded all of these rich memories, now you look back and you can spend days and days and days of all the things that you've done in your life. And it seems like your life was even longer than it, it was. Because again, memories are only perceived. They're not a real thing. In fact, that's what's kind of interesting. We can tailor them depending on how we kind of see the world. Like if we're optimistic and positive, a lot of times the sort of negative things fall off. If we are sort of in, in, on the other side, unfortunately, sometimes we remember the bad And certainly you don't want to have just all good things because that would lead to what happened to me in 2016. We're meant to have a breadth of of different experiences. Yeah, that is an interesting point that you talked about dissatisfaction. I actually hadn't thought of that or read that anywhere, that dissatisfaction is what drives us. Yep. Because if you look at quote unquote happiness, oftentimes we talk about it as this 
you know, pleasure seeking animals. If you believe in evolution, the evolutionary cause for that was for us to do things that would support our living, right? Like we eat calorie dense food because back in the day that was scarce. We enjoy procreating, right? Because like our biological systems want us to continue. And so these things were meant to have a fleeting effect. You know, we call that in science, the hedonic treadmill. Not only that, but one of the sort of problematic things with happiness is it relies us to compare ourselves to others. And we also adapt to things like we're meant to get bored, right? If we're doing, if we're habituating our activity so that we kind of get on with things. And so living a tapestry of different exciting experiences really ends up being what leads to a happier life for all the reasons that we just discussed. And so the problem with always trying to like chase the next best thing is that that becomes an exercise and evaluation. Like did this thing beat the last thing instead of just taking a step back and really being where your feet are and going, am I enjoying this experience? And it's not predicated on the experience before it or the experience after it. Mm-hmm. Eating better is easy with factors, delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside 50 and use code outside 50 to get 50% off. That's code outside 50 at factormeals.com slash outside 50 to get 50% off. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I.com. Slash outside for 15% off your first order.
I love the word tapestry that you use because the point is, is that while you wrote, we often encode common events as a single memory. And so these routine experiences, they just fly by. And so to have this tapestry of experience, you write about the sweet spot for leisure time being two to five hours a day, two to five hours a day. What do people respond with when you share those numbers? Yeah, they just like shake their head. So Right. It seems like it's so much, but then you take a step back and you're like, well, all the research says people are on their phones for four to eight hours a day or something like that. So the time I think is there for a lot of people. You talk about the two hours and then you say the actual amount of free time desired is more than what most people actually enjoy. Can you explain that? Yeah. So I think we want our leisure back. And unfortunately, we're now, again, because work becomes this extension of our domestic life, we're walking into the house still on a meeting, we're at dinner, oh, I got a notification, you know, let me answer it. And so we think that we're being present with our family, but we're not. These are time survey studies that are done by big research institutions. Ultimately, we've tricked ourselves. Generally, if you're really mindful and being really honest about how you spend your time, folks that don't have children generally do have up to five hours where they can own what they do. And folks with children have two. And obviously, there's a spectrum in between. If you don't believe that first, I would suggest looking at the health app on your phone and see how much time you really are on that device. Then just throw all that out and just try and recapture one to three hours in your week. I present the evidence so that you're like, oh, okay, well, I don't really believe that. Fine. How about just doing a simple time audit of 168 hours and figuring out one to three hours within your week where you can create space to then invite fun in. So that's an important first step, right? Because I think, you know, a component of toxic positivity is that all of this is meant to be additive. And I think that's where a lot of interventions, you know, again, geek psychology speak, but a lot of these pieces of advice fail because we're busy. The last thing a busy person wants to do is be told, add more stuff to your day. So let's figure out the things that really just aren't fulfilling, leading to your betterment. Again, whether that's social media usage, whether that's habituated television viewing, where not necessarily villainizing your favorite show. Like if I can tell you, hey, tell me about this episode the last five weeks and in rich detail, you can tell me like um, my wife loves Yellowstone right now. Like that's not a waste of her time because she can tell me, you know, she's living each episode. And a lot of people will relax within their leisure and watch a show with their partner. And it's more about that, the cuddling time. And so that's still a great activity, right? But if you're flopping down on the couch because you're so tired and you're flipping on a cooking show, you could care less about how can we recapture that or whatever it is. For some people, it's going to be friendships. They're just that can do- scrolling through their phone. I mean, yeah, I think their phone. an hour, I, I would imagine that a majority of people spend an hour to three hours a week scrolling through their phone, reading the news, all of these different things that sort of like you said, that's encoding as a single memory. You think that, oh, I'm reading something new. And I think our phones are so good at being like, here's something new. Here's new information. Here's information that you don't really even need to know at all about something that's happening somewhere that you don't live and has nothing to do with anything. And it feels new, but it's not. It's encoding as that single memory. And so maybe that time could be shifted towards something else. No, that's exactly right. So sort of the measuring stick I have for most people is tell me what you learned in that hour. Because again, if we know what is going to help with the resilience and what's going to help us when we're growing old, look back at a life well lived, it's going to be remembering in a joyful way how we experience time. And so 
there's a simple gauge. Look back. Can you tell me how that time was enjoyable and, and what you learned from doom scrolling? For right. an Can hour you even remember it? I think that's yeah. part of it. It's interesting. We're recording this around the holiday time. And so I've got a good friend that I've had for over a decade. We have raised our kids together. And each year, once a week, we do these holiday parties and they are a pain. It is a pain to schedule them. We're texting last night. We have one today. Actually, I'm leaving after this oh, podcast. Nice. Today's theme is candy cane. And so awesome. we're doing all these different things and a candy cane pizza. So we were talking about what we were going to be doing for this party today. And we can remember all of these parties for the last decade. Remember when we did that reindeer one and we did a Santa one and we did a Grinch theme and we did a snowman theme. And we're just talking about all of these different activities that we did. And you remember it. But I don't remember what I read on the news in 2014. And some of it you do need to know. You want to be engaged and you want to be able to have conversation. But you certainly don't remember so much of it. No, and that's a great point. Like, So for me, again, most of this comes from from real life experience, I was definitely a doom scroller. And so when I was mindful about that, I was like, oh my goodness. And so to your point, doesn't necessarily, you know, some people are like, well, go on a news fast. Like that's not going to work for me because I need to feel connected. So I just schedule that. And I realized that in 30 minutes in any given week, I will get as much as I need from four hours of, wait, am I missing anything? Because with a 24 seven news cycle, so much of it is regurgitated that you aren't going to miss anything. If you don't believe me, then do a little self-experimentation. And I guarantee you, (laughs) you know, that you're going to get all you need. Yeah, some people should try it. I think this concept of scheduling is a new one. It's counterintuitive because spontaneity a lot of times is what seems like would be fun. Well, and I think I'm certainly a proponent of spontaneity, but I think you need to create the space for that. Yeah, so you have made the opportunity for spontaneity to happen. And you write in the book about how we often, I really love this part, we often mistakenly think that magical moments shouldn't require planning. While it's true that magic Magical moments are near impossible to contrive. You do have to commit to making space for them in your life. To do so effectively takes, well, this was interesting. You say it takes planning and discipline, which I would have said, oh, it only takes planning. But it does. It takes a discipline to stick with that plan, which I think is what a lot of us don't do. And I think, and I could be wrong, I think that a lot of this just comes from the fact that our culture and our world has changed and become so fast paced. I don't think that people used to have to schedule it as much much. Correct? Incorrect? What do you think? No, you're exactly right. You know, one of the things that I didn't put it in the book because it has been, you know, well studied, but for anyone that is interested in this, just look at city centers only 50, 60 years ago. Our social media was all of us meeting at the coffee shop or doing our errands in the city square. And so there was a lot of social interaction. And, you know, whether you like those people or not, we now know that that you know, that was kind of glue to make you feel safe. That's how we did get our news, right? We weren't, right. you know, having it fed in such a salient way that it, you know, led to this low level anxiety where we need to see what the next Yeah, I is. mean, yeah. that's so interesting because it's like, well, you got the newspaper. And I remember when we got the newspaper, I remember for however many years of childhood that the newspaper came and you would pick and choose, but it was bound in. There was boundaries there. I mean, you can't read a newspaper for 24 hours of the day. It maybe would take you 45 minutes to flip through or last depending on what you're interested in. So the boundaries were there and now there's no boundaries. Exactly. Not only that, but things have been engineered. And I know you talk about this quite a bit to pull us back in. So the newspaper originally wasn't engineered by behavioral scientists to create these variable rewards that make us want to come back. Every headline now is a 
clickbait. So like we might engage with several articles that we had no interest in just because we've gotten so good at creating these hooks. You know, they're essentially now marketing mechanisms. And not only that, but the way that they feed, they're kind of paying attention to what we pay attention to. And you start to develop these mechanisms to distribute media to us that these systems know will keep us in and that not necessarily care about our betterment or things that really will have any impact in, in our life. And so that becomes another thing that's problematic. And I think if you're more deliberate, like, okay, this is the time that I have for news. There's two things. One, you can leave, kind of have a transition ritual afterwards, because I do tend to have like low level anxiety. So I do want to understand what's happening in the world. But then I'm like, okay, I will leave that anxiety because it's not within my sphere of influence after that half hour of, you know, kind of getting caught up. And then the second is you now have encapsulated that, right? It doesn't become expansive. And I haven't relinquished control of my attention to a device that was really designed to keep my attention. And so, you know, you take your power back when you say, right. hey, this is the time I'm going to give you. And it's a magical thing because now you're the one back in control. Yeah. Yeah. It's ironic that there is freedom in constraints. And it's similar with a budget. I think that when you think about having a money budget, it feels like it takes your freedom. But then if you look at it another way, it gives you freedom to spend. This is the money that I can spend. This is the time that I can spend. So somehow within these boundaries, within these structures that we create, we find freedom. And you even talked about, this is something that I've done for a long time, is you schedule your time to worry. And I've talked to friends about that. They've got something going on. It's consuming. And I'll say, well, hey, why don't you worry about it from 8 to 8.30 every night? And then when it comes up the rest of the day, just think, okay, I have time set aside to worry about this later. And it really works. It does. It's why, you know, I, again, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but it's a, a really effective evidence-based tool that that's enough for our brains. For most people, even folks, you know, with low level OCD, you know, I, I think true OCD it might not be helpful. Again, we're not trying to prescribe anything, right? Right. But the research suggests that that's good enough for your brain. Like, okay, I need to worry about this, but you're telling me I can at this time you know, again, it's all of these things, like when you say them out loud, like, really? And like, yeah, and it's, mm -hmm. it's magical. Because what you'll realize is that the rest of the time where you were worrying without that intervention was really rumination, like you, you're not moving yourself forward. Most of worry, the underpinning is wanting to solve the problem or get out of danger. So you do need to worry, right? You can't, again, that's another component of toxic positivity, not saying that you shouldn't have room to worry so that you can figure out how to get yourself out of danger. That, I mean, that would be an asinine piece of right. advice. But if it's just rumination where it's not helping you in any, then yeah, let's figure out a way to fix it. And it's very simple, but extremely effective intervention right. for doing that. Right. So just a little bit more scheduling of our time will really make a difference. You have in here this statement, don't work when you're not working. Sounds easy, but in practice, it's so hard. And you had mentioned it earlier, just in passing, but I really like the idea in here of having that transition between work and not working. I can't remember what you called it, but you even it's, said it earlier. It's a transition ritual. A transition ritual. And I thought that would even be good for the child to see that. Obviously, it's good for the adults, but for the child too. So can you tell us about that? That's amazing because I don't think I bring it. Uh, I think I do mention it once in the book and how it kind of failed, but there is something, and I'm sure you've discussed it with experts in this area. You know, I'm sort of standing on their shoulders as it were, but there is a, a lot of research to suggest if anyone, child, adult, your friend sees the phone out, there's just this low level tension, right? We mm. just oh, know there's a lot of things. I watched this quick video of Simon Sinek where he was sitting on a stage and he was talking to someone like how you and I are talking, like lean forward 
card and they're having this conversation. And then he just goes like this and he holds it in his hand and he says, now do you feel like you're the most important person in the room? I mean, just so much like that. And then there's all the information about the seven minute mark of conversation. And if it gets awkward and you pull your phone out, they say it will never go deep because what you've communicated is that you're not there for it. You're not wanting to do that. Yeah. So with that said, and with the assumption that, you know, the listeners intimately understand that when you get into the house, having a box, right, just a small box, and you have deliberate time with your kids to have fun, put all of the devices, your child's screen and your screen in that box. And it's an amazing signal that, hey, this is our time. And those connections become so much richer, again, because they're owned by you. And even if there's a little bit of discomfort, it sets that social norm that, hey, that's what we're here for. We're meant to to flex our mirror neurons to speak in neuroscience geek, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's where empathy is built because empathy comes from experiencing somebody else's discomfort and that isn't comfortable, right? So the yeah. science that you just kind of alluded to, that's why so many kids are losing empathy because, you know, they can be like, oh, I'm starting to experience that person's emotions. Let me get out of that really quick by jumping on TikTok. And that's really unfortunate because the more we lose empathy, the less we're connected here in the world. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just awful. Luckily, there are a lot of people realizing that. And, you know, I think we're kind of getting back on track, but it's clear that when it's all an act of introspection, we're really ego driven and we stop thinking about each other. And we're really just worried about our own sort of discomfort. And that's where resilience lives. And if we're not building that, you know, things get really weird quick. I mean, it's clear right now, you know, in this sort of real life science experiment we're living in that teenagers, you know, are at an all time low with regards to mm-hmm. self esteem and, and being able to build those tools that when days are bad, where do they turn? Because it's right. all sort of in the room with the screen rather than relying on friendships and the connections they have with their parents. Right. And you have really interesting things in the book about work and this balance. I thought this was really interesting and I want to know if I interpret it correctly. You write, most of us work hard all our lives to reach some end goal, which is this is really true. You know, you talk about that success and meaning. We believe that success and meaning are derived primarily from salaried work. But you write, we're working hard for this goal of achievement, accolades, money, not realizing that when we reach these milestones, we will lack any significant capacity to enjoy them. Why? That was that really made me think, and I'm thinking, okay, does that mean that because we haven't had practice, because it's just kind of too late, maybe it's all of the above? I thought that was a huge statement to say, we're chasing, we're chasing, we're chasing, but then when we get there, we're not going to be able to enjoy it. Or maybe because that's we're just stuck in this pattern. It's probably a lot of things. So you queued me up probably to, uh, I think I'm admitting this for the first time, but that's my hat tip to Alan Watts. So studying his material, I think he makes a really compelling argument that especially here in Western society, we are tuned to meritocracy all of our lives, right? You know, as soon as second or third grade, we're taught that we need to get good grades so that we can go to the next level. And then we need to graduate so we can go to a good college. And then we need to, you know, get good grades in that college so we can get a good job. And at 65, we get that golden watch. And that's when we can enjoy life. And I mean, if you've been listening this last hour, we know that is a recipe for disaster. If you're not pulling a little bit of time off the table through all, all of that to enjoy yourself, you're never making these memories that we're talking about that are so important. 
And you can have your cake and eat it too, if you're being deliberate about it. I certainly passionate about my work. So I'm not, it's not about silent quitting for me. It's about reestablishing those boundaries that have somehow gotten lost in the last Mm -hmm. 20 to 30 years, because most bosses that do care about their employees and they're out there will allow you to establish them, right? If you're doing what's expected. Right. Well, it was interesting because you brought up earlier 168 hours, you said, and I'm thinking, okay, I don't know if I've ever really heard people talk about that. 168 hours, we talk about 24 hours in a day, but 168 hours is actually kind of a lot of hours, isn't it? If 40 hours goes to work or even 60 hours goes to work and 40 hours goes to sleep or more, probably a little bit more. 56 is what you want. 56. Okay, here we go. I used to be a math teacher even. I don't know. (laughs) But you you still have dozens of hours and obviously there's all sorts of things that we are committed to and we're caring for children or we're caring for other situations. But it does seem like, well, there should at least be three to four that we can walk out of there. Right. You know, people rationalize the way that they don't have time and they really do. Mm -hmm. And so the three constructs to play with are where do I have control, right? So even if if it's at work, what are things that you really aren't enjoying and can those be reorganized in a way that that. you're like get rid of the meetings stop ironing your clothes you (laughs) have some great ideas in here about trying to find time and i loved them this episode is brought to you by better help question what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day read a few chapters of that book start painting that guest bedroom tackle that pile of laundry play a card game with your kids a lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash 1000 hours. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chop's hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com outside120 for $120 off. Goodchap.com slash outside120, code outside120. 
Well, and think if just one or two of them work, mm -hmm. you know, that's the thing. All of this is going to happen in a progression, right? You're not going to go from not really having fun to, you know, clicking your heels the next week. But within right. 10 to 12 weeks, you know, just applying even just some of these principles, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is just a lot better. And you don't have to think about it. It just is better. That's where the magic's happening and where I'm having so much fun with this right now. But that's it, right? It's like, you know, to go back to the point that you were trying to make, it's that we really do have more time than we think. And so where can you regain control, right? Where have you habituated your behavior? One thing, you know, especially with parents, are you sitting on a park bench and just watching your kids play at the park? Because those are the moments where you're just letting time pass you by, where you could really be engaging with your child. And so that's a metaphor of Mm -hmm. Or you could be knitting or reading a book, or you could be exercising, or you could be talking with a friend. There is a lot of crossover there, I think, where you could be having fun together, or if the kids are off having fun, you got a little group, you're at the park, you can be inserting instead of being on your phone. So, you know, it's like I try and bring along a good book. Now that our kids are older, I couldn't do it when they were little because you got to watch all the time. And that's not super fun. But if you have a friend there and you can have a conversation and you've got extra eyes, that's like the stacking, right? Or fitting a lot of yeah, I call needs. It activity in, bundling in the book. Yeah, yeah, activity bundling. Totally. Yeah. I loved this part in the book about death. <laughs> well, you talk about your brother. End, right? yeah. You talk about your brother quite a bit through the book. And I think it's very meaningful. Well, why don't you tell us about your brother? Yeah. So, well, I think it's more the event, right? Obviously, I love my brother and we always had fun together. So I miss him dearly. But the reason I bring that up in the book is it's clear, you know, from both kind of a meta spiritual level and also very much a clinical psychology level that when we have gained an intimate relationship with the finite nature of time, that being deliberate of how we spend our time becomes much easier. And so folks that have unfortunately had an awakening like that can often benefit from it. And so again, it goes to that duality of life isn't meant to be all good. And so when you have these moments, how can you use them as a launching pad to live a more joyful life? Because we're not here forever. And just that intimate nature with time, is there a way either just listening to what I have to say in the book, or perhaps it's, it's something unfortunate to happen to you, but that just connects you to the fact that we should be grateful for the time that we have here. And once we live through that lens of gratitude, we'll want to spend our, our time in, in more rich ways, right? Because it's like, hey, we were given this gift to be here on this mm -hmm. wonderful planet, right? I mean, there is a lot of bad, but there's an abundance of good too. Mm -hmm. And so being mindful and going out and looking for it the way that's meaningful for you, whether that's in nature, connecting to a hobby, connecting to you know your kids and your social relationships, whatever it is, using your time wisely in a way that really attracts joy and delight is that secret sauce. And so fortunately, that awakening for me was the loss of my brother. But the real rich sort of wisdom that comes from that is that folks that have had that connection, where whether it's a near-death experience for them, whether it's a kind of metaphorical death, like a really bad divorce or something that woke them up, whatever it is, once you connect to the fact that we aren't going to be here forever, you can start to make some really good choices. And there's, I mean, just a quick geek on the science there, you know, back to these biological systems, it really is interesting that what neuroscience has found is that most of our biological systems want us to live and our brain is no different. So we have this predisposition to not want to think about death because, you know, we don't want to end. But unfortunately, that is a part of human design. We weren't meant to be here forever. So again, it's another one of those subtle shifts. And so in the book, I talk about, you know, how can you create your own momentum mori, um, which is 
essentially, you know, just a, a relic or artifact that you can look at from time to time to go, okay, I probably only have 30 years left. And so, you know, once you know that that's coming, you know, yeah. then you, you want to figure out how can I best spend that time? Right. I listened to someone one time who talked about how many shampoo bottles, how many more shampoo bottles he would buy. He was like, this shampoo bottle lasts one month. And over the course of my life, you know, it was just an interesting thing. I'd never heard of this memento mori. I wrote this down. Another amazing one, just real quick, yeah. that I think really seems to hit that doesn't require as much explanation is, is the uh, 18 summers framework. That seems to be really effective for parents. Yeah. And you don't even get 18. I think it's such a misnomer. It's really interesting to me. It's really a great reminder, obviously, the concept of it. But you know, I had a son that was born in June. So we didn't get that summer because he was a newborn and it was really rough. And now that son is going to be 15 next summer. And already we're not, it's different. You know, he's going to get a job. He's going to have, he's got things he wants to go to with his friends. So I always think you really only get, you know, like two to 12 are those really sweet spot years where they can walk and for neurotypical kids and, you know, you can have a conversation and figure out what's going on and different types of things. But yeah, to know that you have a very limited window here and that time does pass. But this memento mori, I thought, is that, did I pronounce that right? Yeah, that's right. I hadn't ever heard of that. And I thought it was super interesting, especially when you said you would use it. Well, you kind of explained some of yours, but you said, when there is an opportunity to link up with an old friend, but I'm feeling a bit lazy, it's like this kick in the pants, right? To do the thing. So can you just hover on that a little bit longer? Because it's something that I hadn't heard of. And I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I think there's so many missed opportunities, right? For me, within my life, I get to travel a little bit. And because I've gone to a couple schools, I've got friends, you know, around the country. And so, so often, you know, in, in a major market like Atlanta or DC, I have friends that I could hook up with. And before I sort of use those mechanisms, it's so easy to be like, ah, I don't want to go have dinner. You know, I'll just plop down and watch television. And again, in retrospect, we always know that connection eight out of 10 times, sometimes to your point, we'll use rain as a metaphor. It's going to rain, not be good. But for a majority of the times, making those decisions to go out and do the thing are invigorating. Right. So even if you think you're tired, as long as you know, there's always exceptions, sure. right? In my 20s, it might meant a late night of drinking, which was like the next day awful, but I'm 50. And so that doesn't happen anymore. It's a rich catch up with a friend I haven't talked to. And again, because most of our lives are habituated, another resistance is we're like, oh, well, they're probably busy and not going to want to hang out with me. That's almost never true either. They're like, oh my gosh, thanks. And so- Wow. Well, it's interesting that you said eight out of 10. I even would think it's higher. We've had this decade of- I think I, We've had is. this decade I, I of adventuring with kids, which adventuring with kids is hairy. It's chaotic. And we've had a thousand, it's been and really, we started before I started writing about it. So we started in 2011. I spent like 12,000 hours outside with young kids, with babies, with infants, so with toddlers. Amazing. And I can only think of one time that we left because it was super windy and super cold and everyone was crying and we're trying to eat our lunch. And we left in 12 years, one time. And to back you up with science, since I am, mm -hmm. you know, again, have to yeah. prove all this. There's an amazing study. I'll even send it to you if you want to put it in the show notes where the same phenomena about, about talking to people on their commute uh, on the train, I believe it took place in, in Chicago. And so most of us just sit on our phones and never talk to our neighbor, right? right? And everyone 
thought so the, the study was primed that hey just talk to the stranger next to you and, and see how it makes you feel and even the results blew away the researchers like i think it was like all of them thought that they would be interrupting that person's time and it would be uncomfortable and and i think over 90 percent of both the the people that were part of the study and the strangers said they were so glad that it wow. happened because all of this serendipitous conversation and so we often think that we're going to be bothering you know these folks and so even you're talking about rich connections with things that were sort of organized, even in the wild, again, going back to deliberate serendipity, right? Because it's like, it does require some action on your part, but just connecting with folks on these opportune moments always leads to something more rich and something that you'll remember. And a lot of times serendipity, I talk about that in the book, just one anecdote about my friend that did that, you know, it's kind of a casual conversation led to this amazing plane trip around the campsite that he was Oh, yeah. I loved that story. I love that story. And then you had the really cool story about the person that went on a groom's... (laughs) (laughs) You started with that story. Yeah, that was a great story and really memorable. Okay, but the the memento mori, this is the thing that gets you to... Because I think... I mean, that's what my tracker chart does for 1,000 hours outside. I don't ever want to go outside. I just want to sit around. I like to read. I like to play the piano. I just... I don't want to get out. But every time I do go, I'm always glad I went. So it's like we have to have have this push. And so a memento mori is one of those things that is that final push that says, no, I'm going to go do it. So what is an example of what that could be? So for me, it's a picture of my brother. Uh, the one that you mentioned, I still get choked up because I don't like now I don't even need to listen to it because I know the emotional reaction I'll have to it. But uh, it's the <laughs> I don't want to cry on <laughs> um, it's the voicemail of my dad telling me my brother passed. Um because uh, my dad doesn't get emotional. And so it's like maybe one of three memories I have of yeah. him, you know, and, and uh, yeah. And, you know, it's just a reminder that you might not see this person yeah. again. The one of my brother, the picture is of us getting ready to go on the King Dakar in New Jersey. It's the fastest, I think, second fastest roller coaster. Mm-hmm. So that's a joyful memory that the voicemail is not so fun, but it's uh, since it's so emotionally triggering, it works yeah. every time. I just yeah. immediately get on the phone with a friend and say, hey, you know, let's yeah. start living instead of <laughs> watching the office right. rerun for the. You had a, a quote in there that said, I loved this one. If the wine is ready and the person is there, I'm opening it. I no longer want to postpone anything in life. And that urgency, that purpose has really changed my life. And so I thought that Memento Mori was such a great idea. And like I said, it's something that I hadn't heard about. There is so much more in this book. I really and loved that one it. I would... Um... I love it a lot. Some people don't resonate with it, but uh, that comes from a TED talk where a gentleman by the name of Rick Ellis survived uh, the miracle on the Hudson. And so for him, it was a a near death experience. Um, And he essentially realized that he was collecting, you know, all of these wines and like rarely would open any of them where he could have invite more people over and have richer social experiences. And so I recommend anyone to watch that quick, like seven minute TED talk. I remember I had a friend who, would say, you know, I remember when our kids were little, we we got all our clothes secondhand. We were like doing the one income thing and all the clothes were secondhand. And then every once in a while, maybe someone would give us a gift. They'd get a new dress for their birthday or something. And I would save it. And I had a friend that was like, no, they're only going to be in it for four months. Like you have to have them, let them wear the clothes, let them ruin the clothes, get their pictures in those favorite clothes. And instead you, it just hangs in the closet. And then all of a sudden they've outgrown it and you didn't use it. And so it's just thought of time is passing and you have to use it in a way that really matters. 
I just really love the book. And you're talking here about anticipation. You're talking here about being spontaneous. You're talking here about your happiness set point. You talk about, we didn't even talk about the nothing and all of the other things, surprise, uncertainty, and the time expansion. So there's so much to learn in this book. You talk about your travel tips and vacation. Oh, and how you spent all your money in Antarctica. I was happy to read that. You're like, I spent it all. Thank you. And here you sit. Yeah. It's interesting sometimes yeah. to think about, like you think, oh, I'm going to spend my money. I'm going to be destitute. But I mean, you're sitting in a in a room with the books behind you and you have a computer. And at one point you spent all That's your exactly money right. in Antarctica to have this experience. And so, and so Mike, if people are interested in the book, where can they get it? They can get it anywhere that they buy books. So I don't want to plug one, you know, obviously Amazon's easy, but certainly other people could use the money. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're so inclined, I'd go to your local bookstore. But if I would certainly enjoy the support and I think you would enjoy it's the It's fantastic. Book. The fun habit, how the pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life. And that's it. You fix unhappy. There's so many books about happiness, but this is such a unique twist that it's an action step. You got to insert this fun. And how do we insert this fun? Find delight. And if people want to find you, you're at michaelrucker.com. It's a fantastic website. There is a whole lot there. Thank you so I can much. attest because our first podcast we did together was based off of the website and there was a lot to find there and a lot of links right out of the book that take people to your website. Where else can they find you? I'm on Instagram on the wonder of fun, but yeah, the website's really the main mm-hmm. vehicle. So thank you so much for, for having me I on always again. love having you on. Can we end with, well, one thing is that you have so many acknowledgements in the book. I have never seen anything like it. And I loved that. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. I mean, it was just person after person. I was like, did you forget anyone? <laughs> I probably did, which is unfortunate. Maybe, But you know, I though, really, it's really highly tried. possible that you didn't because there are so many people in this list which I thought was, I mean, it's just page after page of names. It's just the coolest thing for the acknowledgements. But we always end with a favorite childhood memory that was outdoors. But since we've already done that, can you share a favorite memory with your brother? Yeah. So we have a lot. I think uh, we enjoyed adventure travel. So, you know, I already talked about the King de Ka, but uh, we got to go to Oktoberfest together in Germany. And oh my gosh, we had so much fun. Like he was really introverted. And so he, you know, rode my coattails, but we, wa- you needed to get tickets to go into the um, the beer tents, you know, so there was kind of like a festival there in Munich. But what we didn't realize is that you had to pre-order tickets to get into these various beer tents and they were like the VIP areas. And so following my lead, cause I had snuck into a lot oh, of entertainment. That was one of the things you talk about in the book too. Uh, how you get these cool tickets and those interesting ideas. Yeah, so I, I taught him how to moonwalk kind of through the exit and we got into a few beer tents and he was just so stoked to kind of follow my lead. And I think I have a couple of pictures on my Instagram account of us, but as you can imagine, uh, yeah. yeah. That just That's one of the things you talk about in the book is volunteering in order to sort of get in the back door and to get the better experience. And so you just have a whole lot of ideas in there about how to do it, even if you have time constraints, which we all do, even if you have money constraints. Uh, which most of us do. So thank you so much, Mike. I am thrilled to have had this conversation again and just really enjoyed your book, The Fun Habit, and can't wait for others to read it. Thank you so much for having me on, Jenny. I appreciate it. Always fun.
If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.